The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, professional family mediator. My guest today is Stan Corey, who's um, an almost famous financial advisor. He's been providing financial services for over 35 years. I could tell you all of his credentials, but then he'd have to translate them for us. So maybe I'll just say he's got really good credentials. Stan is a very much sought after expert. He regularly provides financial commentary at national conferences, in print and online publications, and on TV. He has appeared in USA Today, Working Women Magazine, Money, Northern Virginia Magazine, etc. He regularly serves either as an expert witness or as a financial coach in divorce cases and also gives people advice when they're not getting divorced. Stan recently published a novel that is really a case study about a couple going through divorce. And you can find information about that online at www.divorcedance.com. Welcome to the show, Stan. Ah, thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> yeah, sorry if I was a little long-winded there. Just wanted to tell people about you. Um, so the book, The Divorce Dance, I think that's going to be what we focus on a lot today. Tell me about why you wrote it. Well, uh, the, the short story of it is that uh, 25 years ago when I went through a divorce, I realized that the attorneys that we were working with, um, they had the focus on all the legal issues, but the financial issues were really left to the participants and the clients involved. So uh, it was it was difficult, and the time uh, spent doing it and going through the various uh, issues at that time and realizing very much everything came down to the, the the dollars involved. So after I went through that process, um, I developed a program that I called the uh, Divorce Financial Analysis, and we uh, presented it to a number of attorneys and started utilizing that concept of analyzing the financial aspects of the divorce uh, agreement before someone would actually sign it. I found that I was getting uh, referrals of people after they had signed the agreement, and, and there wasn't a lot you could do to change it then. So we went forward and started working with a number of law firms, and it grew over time. So it worked out very well. And as a result of all those things, I took a lot of experience that I had in dealing with various cases and decided that um, there was a lot of information out there from financial, legal, uh, emotional issues that were more textbook type of uh, resources for people for how-to books. And 
I finally decided that the best way to present the information, especially the technical financial stuff that we can get lost in very quickly, was to draft a novel together and take a sort of a culmination of all of these different stories over the years and uh, try to do something that was a readable uh, book so that people could actually enjoy just reading the book and pick out the things that they felt they really wanted to focus in on or just enjoy the, the reading of the story. And uh, it was quite an experience. Yeah, and the result is very good. Um, it is as you in- <laughs> it is as you intended um, an educational book. I mean, somebody who has been, say, a stay-at-home parent and has not been involved in the family finances uh, can learn an enormous amount from this book. You can learn what you need to learn and how to learn it. Um, but it's wrapped in a story where. I know that I came to care about what was going to happen to these characters, so that's that makes it much more readable. Well, that was so, one of the goals. I think that the key was that um, having a lot of the ladies that I've dealt with over the years uh, allowed me to take little snippets from their cases, and I asked them ahead of time. So there's nothing specifically in there that, that would anyone would recognize, but except for unless you were the participant. And after I got the book done and I sent out copies to these uh, ladies that um, basically <laughs> lended their, lent their story to me a little bit, uh, they all said, well, what page number am I on? <laughs> and did you tell them? <laughs> I did, yes. Oh, okay. That's good. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Sometimes yeah. it, was just, it was just a sentence or two, but they knew what it, they knew what it was re- referencing. Mm-hmm. Well, you titled the book "The Divorce Dance." Why did you say dance? Well, you know what? We we thought about it a lot when I first started writing the book. The working title was "Liar, Liar, Divorce on Fire." And uh, decided that was a little too inflammatory not to make too much of a pun. But the uh, the goal I had was trying to write something that would encourage people to have a more respectful divorce. And using mediation, collaborative, other means, and trying to come up with a what we call a hybrid solution in here. The dance evolved basically probably almost a year after I had written a good part of the book. And the more I had written, the more of the twists and turns that we were taking and uh, dealing with the characters and things that were going on, that it started to remind me of a tango. And I don't know if anyone has seen the uh, Moulin Rouge movie uh, a number of years ago, but at the end, there's this very passionate tango. And and I felt that a lot of the divorce that I've witnessed and been involved in, not only myself, but just in dealing with it with many clients, there's this you know, pulling together and pulling apart and it's real high passionate aspect of it. And so that's kind of the, how it evolved. And finally, I decided the, the concept of a divorce dance made sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it does. And in the story you have at the beginning of the novel, the husband taking the lead in the dance and saying, surprise, I want to get divorced, and I figured out what would be a fair way to divide up our money and how much spousal support I should pay you, so how about that? And uh, the wife kind of reeling from this announcement and not understanding what's going on, but she does educate herself uh, as the book evolves, and there comes a time when she's taking the lead. So it's very much like a dance. 
That, well, that's exactly what I'd hope to do. So I'm very happy you you interpreted it that way. Um, and it was it's a it's a changing of the lead, and it takes time. And uh, because I work primarily with women in these cases, that uh, I wrote it from the female perspective on uh, having her be the teacher. In fact, she is as a character is a teacher, but taking the the lead of how to research and how to find out information and talking with friends and others people to uh, get the data she needed and uh, and present it. So her asking the questions and and so forth is a way to educate the reader. So I had, you know, I thought that was kind of a a good way to present it, and um, so far it's, it, it seems to be working. Yeah. What audience did you have in mind when you wrote the book? Well, you know, it's funny. I went to a, um, I was at a, a group of mediators, and with the question that came up when I was talking about the book, and they said, well, why did you write it from sort of the female perspective? And I said, well, mainly women buy books and then think they have all the answers. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So I, I did intend that uh, the reality is my experience has been working with women primarily, and uh, the uh, reality is women do uh, take the time to research or go uh, get information and stuff, and and men uh, many times come into a situation similar to what uh, Jim did in this case and the and the character in this book and. Uh, uh, has an outline already prepared and has been planning it or and thinks they has all the basic answers necessary and the wife should just go along and agree with everything um, to getting that there's been a break in trust. Mm-hmm. So um, people most likely to read it then would be women who are facing divorce and possibly some men who are smart enough to realize that there's stuff left for them to learn. Um, exactly. I, I, I have a friend, another professional family mediator, Larry Gon, who uh, reviewed the book, and he said the audience, the, the appropriate audience, goes even beyond that. People who are married but a little worried about whether something is going wrong and they might be headed to divorce could really benefit from reading this book because if you take a good look at the divorce process. That may help you make a well-informed choice about whether you want to let your marriage slide in that direction. And you do, in this book, talk some about what preceded the announcement of the intention to divorce, which was that this husband and wife had really different roles in the relationship, kind of a fading of their emotional connection with each other. Um, certainly a decrease in the quality of their sex life. Um, you know, kind of, these are some of the warning signs that maybe your relationship is getting in trouble and you need to do something now so you won't wind up planning your divorce. It is, it is one of those issues that um, you sit down and you try to uh, look at from a variety of perspectives and uh there are so many different ways that people, you know, go down a path that, that leads them into the divorce process. And again, one of the things we try to look at is that are there things that people could recognize, uh, some signs and symptoms ahead of time, and take the opportunity to work on their marriage. And especially uh, when the children are involved, I'm very concerned that the book uh, treats the issue of dealing with the fact of uh, having a family and what 
many times occurs is the children become the unintended consequence or, or uh, collateral damage uh, in a divorce process. And the statistics aren't really that great when, the, when children are not well informed. And so I think it's critical that uh, any process that is out there, especially when there's children, that we make every effort to include them in a way that, that offers them some protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and going down the road even to parenting plans and other things. But it is this whole mixture of a, you know, the emotional and legal and financial cauldron that you have going on here. And it, it, it takes a, a, you know, if somebody can recognize it ahead of time and, and be able to preserve their marriage as a result, that would be fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. it is, it's a challenge. And, and today's day and world where everybody's in different directions and in and, and, and their own careers and stuff, it, it is more challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have done a few radio shows with uh, people who give advice about how to save your marriage or how to improve your relationship. So interested listeners can look for those. Um, But we'll focus back on your book and on uh, processes for getting divorced. I like the questions that you bring up over and over in the book. Two questions. How much emotional and financial capital capital am I willing to spend on this process? And will I have a secure financial future at the end of this? Do you want to add anything about those? Well, I think that's those are the critical key components. Um, to kind of go from the last first is that when I got into the area of dealing with people who have been through divorce, what I found is that they had no clue um, what they had agreed to. A year or so later, they were waking up and um, just didn't understand the consequences of the decisions they made from the financial viewpoint of how they were going to be um, financially secure, at least in their future. And so a lot of people, I think, go through this because of the emotional trauma they're going through. It is very difficult to make a clear or good decision. So it's important that you form a team. Having someone who can help you as a therapist, uh, mental health professional, having a financial person that can help you understand some of the financial issues as well as your lawyer. And I think when you do that, then you're, you're giving yourself a much better opportunity to have a successful divorce. And the the key part from my position and what I've gotten a reputation for is being able to analyze to show people what does it mean for you down the road? Is this mm-hmm. going to be uh, able, it's going to allow you to have um, a standard and style of life that, you know, is, is acceptable? And mm-hmm. how is it going to impact your financial wellness with your children? Um, all of these factors need to be understood before you sign uh, the dotted line, and that's that's the key component. Uh, the emotional currency is is always there. I mean, it's a it's the, the I guess you could go back and most people say the divorce and, and death are pretty close from the emotional standpoint, um, and you have to uh, look at that. And then the financial is is the constant that it is expensive if you have uh, a lot of issues to argue over it's going to be expensive if you don't have that many issues to argue over it won't be so expensive <laughs> but it's a that's direct for sure that's for sure but some issues are worth arguing over because you're giving up too much if you just cave in to what the other person wants yep and that's just that sometimes unfortunately is a strategy mhm yeah yeah, for one person to try to get the other person to cave in, you mean? 
Yes, it's sort of the, the, the again the bullying effect issue and so forth. Yeah, and lawyers are supposed to protect their clients in that situation. Yes. Well, they're but they but again, lawyers have been asked I think many times to do more than you know that they're they're asked to do financial and be their emotional counsel as well, and that's where I think they get in trouble. Yeah, it's, um, that's very definitely a mistake asking. Definitely a mistake to ask your lawyer to uh, address your emotional needs. They're not therapists. You're just wasting a lot of money if you're pouring out your distress and asking your lawyer to listen to it. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we need. We are going to break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about different processes people can use as they approach divorce. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's A-P-F-M-N-E-T dot O-R-G. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm talking today with Stan Corey, the author of The Divorce Dance on Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. We're going to talk a little now about what processes people can use if they are planning to get divorced. You want to take the lead, Stan? Sure. Uh, this is one of the areas that uh, is critical uh, when you're trying to go through this situation. And many people are only familiar with what they've seen on TV, and this is a court case, um, or hearing all the horror stories from others about going to court and not getting what they want or being all these things happening. And the reality is the court is the last resort that people will go to. And less than, you know, most states, it's probably less than 10%, and many less than 5% of cases will actually end up at the courthouse. And that's because most of the cases are settled through negotiation between the lawyers or through other processes that are available out there today. Uh, 
25 years ago, the, the collaborative law was really in, in its infancy. But today, a good portion of cases are, are settled through a collaborative process where it's a very transparent uh, process where people get together and their lawyers are working together and the clients and mental health professionals and financial, um, where the financial acts as a, as a neutral. And they are able to come up with some very unique solutions at times. Um, and the overall uh, emotional issues are dealt with. And so it's a sort of a uh, kinder, gentler way kind of going through the divorce process. And it helps to have a better outcome. Uh, we have found that people going through a divorce process using collaborative, um, I'm going to talk about mediation is similar, um, in that, you know, the times, uh, trouble people have coming back in a divorce or coming back and, and retrying issues is less frequent when there is a settlement through collaborative or mediation. Uh, the mediation process has been around much longer. Um, it is a, a wonderful process, basically, where you you want to have a neutral party. You're not asking a lawyer to represent your interest, uh, to be your advocate per se, but you need someone to help you understand issues so that you can come to a conclusion together with your spouse uh, or your soon-to-be ex-spouse. And most of this is where there's a, a conflict or an impasse that may occur Either uh, that you've got most of the things settled or a good number of things that you've agreed upon, but there are certain issues that need to have expert assistance on and bringing that understanding. It can be somebody that just, just wants to use a mediator directly, um, and other times using a mediator is a result of an impasse while working with lawyers in a negotiation process. One of the myths, though, I'll throw out there is that mediation is a cheap divorce. Um, I think that every, sometimes people think of that as being the the way to go if you don't have any money. But mediation serves the community in all different levels of financial uh, wealth. And mediators are a great resource to resolve issues. Um, and again, I'm, I'm one of these believers in trying to find a better way to resolve issues without having long-term conflict uh, or having a situation where you're going to um, have conflict arise in the future because of unresolved issues early in the process. Uh, one of the things that I think is really important, uh, and I got to keep reflecting back, and especially when you have children, is the realization that you're going to know each other forever. You've created children together, and you're going to have an interaction with each other uh, through the children, and hopefully with the uh, possibility of you know graduations and birthdays, holidays, but then marriages and maybe children and grandchildren. So all of these things mean that you're going to have a connection, and it would make a lot life a lot easier if you could have, develop a way to communicate properly and avoid having ongoing conflicts. So I found that having a more respectful divorce through mediation, collaborative, or uh, traditional negotiated settlement uh, without court is the most beneficial way to go. And then 99% of the cases will be far less expensive than ever going to court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, going to trial is absolutely the most expensive way you can possibly get divorced. And the most traumatic. <laughs> and, and you probably won't like the outcome. It's unpredictable, and I, I, I've just very often both people feel like they lost. Yep. Very rarely do both people come out with a smile. Yeah, <laughs> very rarely. Sometimes not even one. <laughs> But as you said, most cases are settled through negotiations. You can negotiate with a collaborative law team of professionals, or you can negotiate in mediation directly with your soon-to-be ex-spouse, or you can 
talk to your lawyer and let your lawyer talk to your spouse's lawyer and the lawyers can handle the negotiations about how to settle issues. Um, but very few cases, a low percentage of cases actually go to trial. So um, you talked, you've already spoken about what kinds of professionals might be involved. Let's see, did we leave anybody out who's frequently involved? Um, often, uh, you want, often you want to have a professional family mediator. Generally, it's a good idea to have an attorney, even if you're doing almost everything in mediation. You need an attorney to give you advice because the mediator is not allowed to give you legal advice. We can give you tons of information, but not legal advice. Um, you mentioned therapists. Um, I think of two categories of therapists. One, to actually help the husband or wife deal with this emotional roller coaster that comes with separation and divorce. And others to help them in planning about their children. You want to say anything Absolutely. about that? Okay. Um, I'm a very big proponent of that, and, and developing a parenting plan is also critical as a result of that. Mm-hmm. But giving the children a voice in the process is, is critical, I think. Yeah, that's that's hard to do and often overlooked, um, giving the kids a voice. You know, a lot of parents make the decisions and inform the kids and... There's just one conversation with no follow-up, and it's tough for the kids. And that's regardless of age, I have found. It. They can do, five-year-olds and 15-year-olds, or 25-year-olds, even kids that are out of the house sometimes have great difficulty dealing with mom and dad, mm-hmm. parting their ways after they've graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Um, so we've talked about kinds of professionals, and of course, financial advisors. We don't want to leave them out. <laughs> oh, let's um, not forget them. <laughs> yeah, let's not forget them. You are one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But so, the, yeah. the, the, the role of a good financial person is someone that you would want to have somebody that has knowledge base in the divorce process, and it's, it's critical because there are so many nuances. So somebody that deals with not just the financial, you can have a financial advisor to help you on a specific financial issue to understand a financial thing like a sock option or something. But as far as coordinating and working within the divorce process, you need to find someone who has been in that field and does it regularly, um, whether they have some certification or they have the experience, but they need to be a CFP or CPA um, and so forth along with that. And then they can help the person uh, understand the consequences of their decisions. And that's really the, the key that I keep stressing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and not only in my book, but professionally when I, when I work in the divorce world. Mm-hmm. So it's maybe worth mentioning that um, different people will have different levels of needs for involving a number of professionals. You know, there are couples where the husband and wife work most of it out on their own and each talk to a lawyer, each meet with a mediator once or twice, and they're done. They've figured out what they need to figure out, and they've got their property settlement agreement. And then there are people like your heroine, Natalie, who need to learn a lot fairly quickly at a time when their emotions may be in turmoil. 
And sometimes people, again, with, during that process, could make some poor choices that they uh, they hear the horror stories, or they hear from their girlfriend or boyfriend, or you know, um, uh, not literally girlfriend, boyfriend, but friends, I was to say, and family members who may have their own biases as a result of experiences they've had in divorce, or knowing someone who had gone through a divorce. And you get people who will come out and say they want you. They say you should go for blood. You should, you know, all these things are while other people are looking at. It and trying to have a little more reasonableness to it, um, mm-hmm. and that this is where again the, uh, the nastier it gets, the wealthier the lawyers get. I this is the old tease, but uh, truly uh, trying to find an alternative methodology is the key. Mm-hmm. So you talk some in the book about how to choose which process to use: collaborative law, or mediation, or having lawyers handle it on your behalf or doing some hybrid process. Um, would you talk, like to talk a little bit about the criteria you recommend using for choosing which process? Well, uh, you know, it's funny. I think that each one of them is a, uh, can be this overlay on all of them. Uh, many times you say when the lawyers are just the ones that are negotiating, they may negotiate on your behalf, but you are still responsible for making the final decisions. Um, in mediation, you've got somebody who's a neutral and can help you through the process. And I found that mediators are really good. And where people have a desire to reach a resolution uh, in in a good manner without a, you know having as much conflict, and they're they're they've got their sort of what we say they're act together a little bit better. Um, I think that uh, although mediators have worked in, in obviously different cases where there was more critical issues and in business and so forth as well, but um, in most cases, I find mediation does well with a, a couple that's, that wants to to work through together on the on a process to have a little more self determination, and that's true with collaborative. Collaborative it's taken it a step further because now the lawyers have agreed that they won't go to court, even if the collaborative process breaks down, that they can't represent you in court, and now you've got a whole team of people for both sides of having the the mental health professionals, the financial person that's in the collaborative team is actually the one true neutral there. They can't work with either party party going forward, but they can provide that information and and understanding of the financial issues and then the lawyers, but you end up as a group kind of come to a a solution. Um, And I think that's a great process. But what I've found is that uh, too many times people felt they had to do all of one or the other, they couldn't combine. And that's where I've tried to come up with the concept of the hybrid approach was to say, well, what if you have one spouse who does not want to do mediation or does not want to do collaborative and, um, or things they can do it on their own, and the other party really needs help? And that's sort of what I demonstrated in the book was the, the husband in this case started out thinking he could you know, present and do most of it himself and then realized that he needed a, a lawyer but didn't feel he wanted to have a mental health professional or financial person that um, didn't want to spend that money. And the woman in this case was able to form her own sort of personal collaborative team, and that was really a key to her success because she had the support then that she needed to get independent objective advice from her team. And I think that's what, that's the key. And so I, I try to encourage people to say that there's not any perfect way to do it. It is what works best for you and your situation. And you don't have to follow only one thing. You can create what what works for you by combining some of these ideas together. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, which is, it's a an approach that mediators very often recommend if one party is at a disadvantage because they don't understand the family finances, then we recommend that they seek out a financial professional who can educate them about that. Um, And similarly, if one person's emotionally distraught, we recommend that they get some help handling their emotions (laughs) so that they can make well-informed voluntary, rational decisions about questions that are going to affect the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but people forget that, that this is something that uh, I used to, when I taught at the Women's Center here in Vienna, Virginia, was I, we often said to the ladies that uh, your marriage may not have lasted forever, but your property settlement agreement will. So you can't go back later and change it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. once you signed off, this is what you're going to end up living yeah. with. Yeah, I was I was kind of surprised to hear you telling me that uh, as recently as 25 years ago, there were lawyers who let their clients sign agreements that they didn't understand. That's kind of crazy. Well, I think what's happened, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I, I can tell you my, my own witnessing this, and, and not only my own case, but where the lawyer will reach over and kind of look at you and say, well, can you live with this? How does this feel to you? How do, what do you think of this? Asking for the person to give their opinion on after they divvy things up this way, is this going to be okay? And they kind of have this glazed look on their face, like, I have no idea. Yeah. But the person will nod their head and sign the paper. Yeah, that is that is kind of crazy. I think I, I heard one lawyer once tell me, you know, if your client doesn't understand the finances, maybe you're running close to the edge of what might be called malpractice if you don't get them a financial advisor so that they can understand what they're doing. Not too far off. The, and the other side of it is not to have them practice financial planning either. Right. I always right. tease my lawyer friends. I said, I won't practice law if you don't practice, practice financial planning. there you go (laughs) okay Um, you have a list of questions uh, to think about discussing your finances that I think I will defer until after the break we can talk a lot more about different ways that a divorce financial analyst can help a person different roles that they might take and different questions that they might address so we'll be back soon No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's APFMNET.org. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. 
You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Stan Corey, author of The Divorce Dance, is talking with me today on Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, professional family mediator. We're going to talk now about the different roles a financial advisor might play when people are getting divorced and the various questions a financial advisor might help you to understand and answer. And I think I would like to start with the questions that a financial advisor in the story asks the main character, one of the main characters, Natalie, um, relatively early in their relationship. Things that you need to think about. I'm going to just read them. Who is paying the bills? What are your biggest concerns? Are you familiar with your income tax returns? Did you keep track of your savings and investments? Do you know the balance on your home mortgage? Do you know what the monthly payment is and what the interest rate is? Did you and your husband talk about retirement or about his company benefits? That's not the whole list of questions you might take up with your financial advisor, but it gives people a good idea of what you need to learn about, what you need to be well informed about so that you can make your decisions wisely. And I think you also had a great checklist of assets and financial information somewhere in the book. I think so. I think it was in the in the appendix there. But no, I think that this is this this is critical. The um, the reason I think a, a good financial person is going to ask those basic questions is to get a, a quick sense of the person's understanding of financial matters. Uh, many times, you can have very intelligent people come in the door, but if they haven't really, you know been paying attention to it, uh, it's both husbands and wives are guilty of this, that they can let one spouse or the other be the lead for taking care of the financial matters in their home. Um, many times it's, it's the woman will be the financial person that takes care of paying all the bills and take care of the day-to-day, but is clueless as far as having information about their retirement plans or the investment accounts that the husband might uh, tend to deal with that, or that the husband has uh, stock options and other types of things through work. So having an understanding of how familiar they are with these issues, um, I find one of the, the quickest ways beyond knowing if you know whether you pay bills or not is do you know the balance on your mortgage, those types of things. But also, um, are you familiar with the, your taxes and the, the amount, number of people that will sign a tax return without ever reading it is amazing. Uh, about 20 years or so ago, the IRS came out with the, the rules that they changed about what's called an innocent spouse rule. And that was because the, if there was a uh, couple that filed a return that turned out to be false, so they owed a lot of money. One spouse decided to leave town, the IRS would go after the spouse they could find, whether they had any knowledge of the activities on the return or not. And so they finally came out with this innocent spouse rule because of that. 
And truly, um, I would never recommend anyone sign a tax return without having some understanding of what it says and looking at some of the numbers and asking some questions if they're not the ones that prepared it. Uh, your accountant that prepares it certainly wants the, their clients to understand the tax return before they sign it and is very willing to answer any questions that you have. But if you have someone who is preparing the return themselves with one of the popular software programs out there, then um, I think it's important if you're, you were not the one that prepared it that you understand what numbers are on the return, where they come from, what do they mean. Um, you know, why does the W-2 have a different number than what you told me your gross income was? Uh, how much of that income went somewhere else, or what happened to the money that when a property was sold or stock was sold? Um, a classic is when uh, someone might have a hundred thousand dollar portfolio, and on their tax return it shows two hundred thousand dollars worth of transactions. Uh, do you understand how that could possibly happen? <laughs> it's little things like that. But I find, a, I, from a financial position, uh, my, I, forensically, I love tax returns because normally people don't lie on tax returns, but uh, they may be aggressive on deductions, but they're usually not going to lie a lot about their income because it creates a, uh, a liability of spending some time in the, behind the bars. But uh, uh-huh. The idea that you can gain a lot of information from looking at a tax return and gain greater understanding of your overall financial scenario, um, a good place to start is your tax return. And I always recommend to the ladies to come in that that I'd rather have a have a good uh, a good financial statement and last two years tax returns than a picture of their husband coming out of a hotel room (laughs) with another woman. (laughs) With well, with with whatever, yes, another with a with a woman or whomever. Yes. Okay. So um, one of the illustrations that's in the book that really affects both parties is what you can learn from a W-2 form and a tax return about sort of hidden income. Um, I think there's a point at which Jim develops a spousal support proposal, an alimony proposal, that he thinks is fair and reasonable and down the line in the book, he realizes that he hasn't taken account of what his true income is. And these are things that, you know, um, a mediator who's not very well educated about finances or a lawyer who's not very well educated about finances could easily overlook. Um, so it's, it's really, this is a place where you can see the clear value of having a financial advisor involved. I think that um, there was. What you want to say? What what sure. what was? I was going to say that the, the the area that's missed often is that if you just get a tax return by itself, it's telling you basically what the net income, this taxable income, is just coming in the door. But if you get, if you also get a copy of the the actual W two statement, is critical along with the tax return. And I all in addition like to have the information on the employer benefits that they have for the employee, especially if there's an executive involved. And the basic line is that if you look at a W-2 and somebody's contributing to a 401k retirement plan, those are pre-tax dollars. So they'll show up on the W-2, but will not be reflected on the tax return. In addition, you can have the opportunity to put additional monies away on a pre-tax basis in what's called a deferred compensation plan or executive uh, types of plans that they offer uh, the, the higher paid people that they can continue to put away monies 
in excess of the IRS limits for 401ks. So you could shelter, I just reviewed one recently where the person had the option to shelter as much as 60% of their income. So if they had done that, only 40% of their income would show up on the actual tax return. And if you're only looking at the tax return, you could be obviously very misled on what the available income resources would be. Mm-hmm. All income that a person earns is going to be includable. So you need to add back things that they've contributed to that would have been pre-tax, whether it be a retirement plan or for uh, things called a cafeteria plan where you have, uh, you're able to pay for some of your child care or pay for health benefits and things like that through your uh, pre-tax account. Uh, but that's very, it's a very critical and easily missed opportunity. The other mm-hmm. one that I, fi- I find frequently is where people have different kinds of options available um, and utilizing those options at times, it can have uh, totally different tax impacts. And whether those options are considered uh, income uh, currently or income in the future, how do they play into the system? So there's lots of little nuances that it makes it really important. But the W-2 is a critical, as- a critical piece of information to have with your tax return. Okay. When you talk about op- options here, are you talking about stock options or some other kind? No, I'm talking about stock options in a business, but there are different types of stock options, and and they have each each of them have a whole different tax structure to them. And again, uh, that that's where you'd have to find someone with knowledge that can help you understand the differences between an NSO, a not qualified stock shop option, versus a qualified stock shop option, or things that are called. Um, you know, RSUs, which are uh, basically where you have uh, stock units that come out in the, in the future. Um, so there's a whole variety of ways that people can have additional income that's not going to be currently reflected on their taxes. Mm-hmm. And it's crucial to know about it because it affects your decisions about what amount of spousal support would be reasonable, and it affects decisions about what amount of child support would be reasonable. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a place in the book where you talk about refinancing the marital home, which happened once or twice for Natalie and Jim. Um, why does that matter? Why do you need to know about that? Well, again, when you try to determine what is the, uh, if there's a, this comes more into a, uh, an issue when there's a called a hybrid property where somebody may have contributed some premarital assets to purchase of a home. And so there's a portion of that home that's not going to be part of the marital property division. And if you've done some refinancing and monies have been pulled out at time of refinancing, where sometimes you refinance and just, you know, refinance the balance, maybe roll in the expenses, it's different than if you refinanced and pulled $50,000 out of it uh, for doing something else, buying a boat or something like that. So those kind of issues can have an impact on the determination of actually what is the true marital portion of the equity in a home. Uh, So we need to go back and understand how the refinancings were done and whether uh, monies were pulled out or not. Is it easy for you to tell tell us a story, give us an example of um, some folks you worked with where this had a big impact on their settlement, this sort of thing? Sure. I mean, without a, without violating your client's confidentiality, no. of course. <laughs> no, I never would give a, a, a specific case for you. <laughs> but yet, no, the, the the issue is basically um, comes a, a, 
comes into play quite often today, where, uh, especially if there's been uh, a late marriage, um, somebody that may have gotten married in their 30s, and they have already had a home, they've already built up some assets, and now they've they only get married, and the the other party moves into their home, uh, they they you know now all income going in is paying the mortgage, adds creates some marital portion of it. If they refinance the house to add on a, a make an addition or do something like that, then then now you're putting different monies in and you're commingling the 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 monies in the home and so it can take quite a lot of effort to figure out what portion is of it it would be considered marital uh there's been cases where the where one party has basically owned a home and the other person hasn't contributed and 10 years down the road the house is appreciated and the the uh spouse that hasn't participated in the home is uh not being offered anything the person may be claiming the whole thing to be separate property but there are other there are other kinds of contribution that has to be taken into account, and you'll find out that they have refinanced it, or that the monies that the that have been earned that are marital have contributed to the house. So it can completely change the dynamics of the property settlement agreement when you recognize that there is a marital portion to the property. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just in case it's not obvious to all of our listeners, whatever is marital property is going to be divided between the two people, and whatever is separate property you get to keep. The person who owns it gets to keep it. Right. So this, this issue of hybrid property is pretty important. And, 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 and it varies widely from different between states. So it's very important to, to check out what state you're in and what, what the rules are on how states deal with that. Yeah, that's, that's true. There are states where, that say that everything that the two of you gain during your marriage belongs to both of you equally. And there are other states that say if you can trace it to a separate assets, such as an inheritance, um, that it's still yours. Correct. All right. We're almost out of time. Is there anything that you would like to repeat for emphasis? I think the key comes down to, as you mentioned earlier, um, it's the amount of emotional support, excuse me, emotional currency, um, as well as the financial uh, currency that you want to contribute when you get involved. And I think that having a team approach, whether you do have your own team or uh, both have a team to work with, would be much more beneficial. And I hope that people that go through this difficult time would try to find a more respectful way to get through the divorce process. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 